On the morning of July 11th, 2001, Michael O'Brien, an avid cyclist, was riding his bicycle on a New Mexico road when an SUV hit him head on going 40 miles per hour. The crushing accident left him near death as the medevac helicopter descended to take his broken body to be pieced back together. Today, Michael is with us and will take us to the darkness of his accident and the long, slow road to recovery, but he'll also take us to his shift, the moment when he decided it was the power of his mind that would decide the rest of his life. It wasn't the tragedy that would define him, but how he responded to the tragedy. Stay tuned. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee. And I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. I recently returned from a genius boot camp put on by Leslie Householder in Arizona. The concept behind her teachings are a great understanding of universal law, which is really interesting to me, and how to implement those laws for the greatest, most powerful creation of our own lives. At the very foundation of universal law is the understanding of the power of the human mind, where we focus our attention, begins to create things spiritually. And eventually, we bring those into the physical world, whether it's an idea of something we want to create or attracting abundance or changing our vibrations to live healthier or with more joy. Truth always ties into truth. And as I read Michael O'Brien's book, Shift, and cheered him on as he intentionally chose the mindset and perspective that would help him make his way into the life he wanted. I just smiled at the way this truth comes up over and over. This is why I'm always asking you, what story are you telling yourself? Are you creating your life on purpose? And you're responsible for creating the life story you want to tell. You know, you've heard me say these things over and over, but it's all about our personal agency to shift our story when needed. And that's what Michael and I are going to talk about today. Michael, Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thanks, Lori. It's great to be on. And I just love what you just said. I think the conversation that we're having with ourselves and the energy we put forth is something I didn't know before my accident, but I definitely learned a whole bunch about it during my recovery. Oh, which is beautiful. It's amazing the things that we can learn. So let's hear about your story and your shift. Your accident was almost 20 years ago, and I believe your book just came out. So when did you decide that you wanted to start sharing your story and why? Well, I was a reluctant sharer of the story. So it happened, yeah, back in 2001. So officially my story is an adult. It's over 18. And when I left my corporate job and I came into the work work I do today, there were so many people that said, you got to, you got to write your story. You got to share your story. so, So what is the work you do today? Um, I help leaders, I help corporate leaders lead better. I like to think that I try to help them prevent bad moments from turning into bad days and living life and leading with more connection, with more energy for the things that truly matter. So we can have, as you mentioned in your intro, more abundance. Uh, So they can follow their own script, a different script than maybe they were following in the early part of their career and and avoid their high-speed collision. 
uh, because I already went through it. So I, I want to try to provide that gift to them, the lessons I've learned along the way. So it's very tied to your experience of helping corporate leaders then not have that head-on collision, but control their thoughts and their destinies. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, still to this day, we, we most of us spend our careers in a corporate environment. Not everyone's an entrepreneur. And I do believe since we spend so much time at work, if we change how we work together, we can change how we live together. And I think where we are today as a society, we need to start living better together. We need to come together. We, we can have differences of, of opinion, but we oh, don't have to, we, yeah, we don't have to, um, we don't have to feed our addiction to being right. We can be curious with each other and empathetic and, and have a, a better conversation. So I like to, like my contribution to society is how do we change how we work? And if we can change how we work, maybe that cascades into how we live. Mm, and thank so you. that's, yeah, that's the work I'm trying to do at current, current day. Okay. So I interrupted where you were going back with why you're telling your story now. Yeah. So a lot of people said, you got to go out and write your book. And as a newly minted entrepreneur, they're like, it'll be great for your business. It'll be great for speaking. And when I thought about it, I was like, I don't know about that. Like I understood intellectually what they were saying, but for me, it was like, it's my story. And there was it's very personal, little, isn't it? Yeah. They, like when you put out your memoir, it's like, you're sort of running naked through the bookstore or Amazon, <laughs> right? you know, like, cause like it's all there. And if people love it, you, you, you do feel happy and grateful, but what about someone didn't like it? And so I hesitated, I put up some armor, I put up maybe a mask, I was pushing that away, but more and more people said, you really have to share your story. It, it's selfish if you don't share. <laughs> and so that, sort of captured my attention. And then I decided like really deeply, and I took a course with uh, Seth Godin and he has a famous question, like what's it for? And I spent a lot of time noodling that. And I was like, you know what? This book is for my daughters who were three and a half years old and seven months old at the time of the accident. They don't really remember pre-accident dad. Mm. And I wanted to write the story for them. I also wanted to showcase how amazing their mom is because I'm only here because of my wife. And if only two people read it, I would be happy. Like, you know, two, well, maybe three, my wife and my two daughters. And so I set forth saying, okay, my expectations are writing this book for my girls. And then if other people pick it up and they can find some inspiration and motivation, all the better. So I got really clear with what it's for. And, and I let go of all the stuff that was all about commercial success. That didn't fuel me. In fact, I donate all the proceeds of Shift to a charity called World Bicycle Relief. They help girls conquer the challenge of distance by giving them a bike. So I I really went intentional about like this book is not about making money. This is about telling a story of what can happen with the right type of awareness, mindfulness, and the right type of community around you that we can respond to our challenges and we can be defined by how we respond to life's most challenging moments and not by them. You know, I believe so strongly in the importance of each of us telling our stories. And like like you mentioned, it may be a two-person audience. It may be just for your your family, your grandkids, your, you know, your kids, your grandkids. But those are important. Those are the those are the most important people. And I I sat down with my dad the other day and was doing some recording about an hour of just his life stories. And he was telling me stories from the 50s. And that's a time that I am unfamiliar with. 
And so almost everything he was telling me was shocking to me because he was talking about things like the hobos that would ride the trains. And as little kids on the farm, they would take their BB guns and they'd go shoot them in the hobo cities. And and my dad's a really good guy. So to hear him like talk about stuff like that, I was like, really? You did that? <laughs> and his parents would like, when they were little, they he had 12 children in his family. And so I wow. just think grandma couldn't and didn't, you know, keep track of them all because it was a safer day and they could go do things. But he remembers riding his tricycle like down to the cement plant and you had to get on the freeway to do that on his tricycle, you know, and then they come home at the end of the day and do their thing. But I'm like, no, no mother now. Like her kids would be taken away from her if the kid was found on the freeway riding his tricycle. Yeah, can you imagine that if you were going down like the expressway in Utah or for me in New Jersey and we saw a kid on a tricycle? Yeah, we'd, no. we'd, we'd call 911. <laughs> totally. Like just all the life stuff that he was bringing up and remembering were so bizarre and different than what we would ever see or even imagine because we weren't there in our day and age. And those stories became super, super important because they were taking us to a time that we had not lived through. And it just really drove the point home for me of how important it is for each of us to record from our perspective, the things that happened to us, the things we went through, because our children and grandchildren, our families at the very least, will appreciate the insight into who we were and what we experienced and even the differences in history, that kind of thing. So I love what you said, that little tangent there was coming back to this idea of, I love that you got really clear on why do I want to write this? Who am I writing this for? And what you did there is you created a history of a really transitional time in your life and your thoughts and experiences and struggle that will do so much more than you even understand that it will do. When your kids go through a hard time and they need to look back and say, look what my dad made it through. I can make it through this. And that will come up probably more than you realize. Yeah, I I think it will. I know obviously they're 19 and 22 now. So they've had life moments through middle school and high school Mm -hmm. and now into college. And they may not necessarily reference like, hey, you know, chapter three, dad. But (laughs) I know that there are things from, you know, how we live our life, how that event, you know, shaped our family, shaped our marriage, how we raise them, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole different way of parenting where there's, you know, more community and and more connection, like that they feel safe and they have a sense of belonging, like all those downstream effects from that one last bad day, I think has had a profound impact on their life right now. And my only hope is that they'll remember these lessons and, and leverage them as they go forward in life, as they start their professional career and they might meet someone and start a family of their own. And I think the good foundation, hopefully, for them to have the type of life that they desire. Absolutely. In fact, I saw some research and it was talking about how important it is to give ourselves, but it was speaking specifically about teenagers, kids as they're growing up, to give them roots, to teach them about who their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were. Because when they get into tough spaces, if they know that, if they know where they come from and they have a deeper sense of self that it gives them strength and perspective and, you know, roots to draw on when they need things to hold them in the ground while the wind blows, you know? 
Oh, I love that. You know, because yeah, I definitely think that is part of life. How do we, you know, stand firm? And it's the grit and tenacity and perseverance and resilience all sort of wrapped up together. We need that in life. We're going to have challenging moments. And as I share my story about my last bad day, a lot of people are like, well, does anything bad ever happen to you? I'm like, well, you know, for me, I use my last bad day as a metaphor for the, the day you decide to live life with more awareness, to write your own script. And so certainly, Lori, like I have my bad moments, but I don't want a bad moment to get any more fuel than it deserves. I don't want it to hijack my day. I can have a moment. I can try to reduce the intensity and duration, and I can go back to the things that bring out the best in me, which then helps me hopefully bring out the best in other people. And so having those you know, foundational skills as a teenager and through their like professional life and adulthood, I think, we, well, heck, it's just not them. It's for all of us to be able to weather whatever storm happens to come our way. And then we grow from that. And I think our challenges can make us unbelievably stronger and helps us change that conversation that we have with ourselves because we know it's within us. Beautiful. Take us to the accident and tell us what you remember. Because the audience, I have read his book. It's called Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows, Winning at Work and in Life. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. But for the audience members, this is their first time hearing about you probably. Tell us about the accident. What happened? Yeah, so I thought I was the smartest cookie at my corporate meeting. We had an offsite in New Mexico, north of Albuquerque. And I decided to bring my bike out. I have this goal of riding my bike in every one of the 50 states. And New Mexico had not been conquered yet. So I was like, all right, New Mexico in July, not necessarily ideal, middle of the desert. But I'm going to bring my bike out. I was training for a bike race, been an avid cyclist all my life. Other guys brought their golf clubs and I brought my bike because I thought, hey, this cycling thing could be the new golf. And on that morning of July 11th, I was doing this two-mile loop. I thought I was going to get 10 loops, 10 laps in, 20 miles. I came around the bend and a Ford Explorer had crossed fully into my lane glory, as you know, from reading the book. It was coming right at me. And I looked up and I was like, certainly he sees me. He's going to move. Certainly he sees me. He's going to move. But he never moved. He never saw me until it was too late. And I remember hitting his grill, the sound I made. I don't think I'll ever forget that sound. And then the sound I made as I flipped into the windshield and the screech of his brakes. And then the thud I made. When I came to the asphalt below, and of course, the initial impact knocked me unconscious, and I remained unconscious until the EMTs arrived. And when I regained consciousness, I was surrounded by people, the EMTs, fire, ambulance, police, you name it. And they were in a, a mode of urgency, and I could not move. Like the thought of moving was so painful, worst pain I've ever felt in my life. I did something that only another cyclist can appreciate. I asked them in that moment, how was my bike? So it was my, it was my lame attempt to cut the tension of the moment with a little humor. And that's something that every cyclist does after she or he crashes. They're like, how's my bike? I'm, I'm fine, but how's my bike? And you know what? I, I totally actually understand that because I do that with all of my gear. I had loaned this really expensive pair of Art Terrence snow pants to one of my um, oh, cool. to, to a young lady and she was tubing and ran into a tree and broke her femur and they're hauling her off. And I'm like, don't cut off the snow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that awesome that she got hurt, but I was like, yeah. oh, it. So, um, <laughs> so they were like, you got to focus on you. Like my bike wasn't fine, nor was I. 
And I just remember, Lori, willing myself to stay awake. I thought if I could stay awake, I could control the situation as crazy as that sounds. Because I had a little bit of a thing with control back then. I thought, you know, as a leader at work and a patriarch at home, I had to be in control. And I had no control over the situation. And then I remember waiting for the helicopter to come. And I was terrified about being in that helicopter. I was fighting for my life, but still terrified of being in a helicopter for the first time. And when they put me into the helicopter to take me to Albuquerque, which was the home of the only trauma one center in the state, I told myself, really made a commitment that, hey, Michael, if you live, life is going to be different. You're going to stop chasing happiness. Mm. And that was something I was doing a lot before the accident. And I think it's happening even more frequently today than it was back in 2001, because we have so many outlets to you know, basically create a comparison, a comparison itis, as I like to say. Mm. And I thought I would be, you know, I'd compare myself against, you know, the my colleagues, my neighbors, what, what they had, what I didn't have. But I also thought like, I'll be happy when I get promoted, or I'll be happy when I get that new car, that we change the house, or this meeting is going to be over. Like my happiness was never present. I was always in this mode of like chasing it. And Sometimes I caught it. Like I bought the new car and I was happy for a moment, but like any vapor finish line, as you know, sooner or later it sort of floats away, it vanishes, and then you go back to chasing. Yeah, so, you got to come up with another one. Yeah, you got to come up with another one. And I just spent my time sort of like that hamster on its wheel, just chasing away, grinding it out, doing a whole bunch of stuff so I could have a whole bunch of stuff. And then I thought I'd be happy or be a leader or be whatever, as opposed to just being. And they flew me to Albuquerque and the first surgery took about 10 hours plus, depending on when you start the clock. I had broken a whole bunch of everything. The left femur shattered. It also lacerated the femoral artery of my left leg. So the doctors had told my wife, had I been 10 years older or not in shape, I would have died before I got to the hospital because I lost so much blood. For my first surgery, I needed 34 units of blood product, combination of plasma and red blood cells and the whole shebang. And the next four days, I don't remember anything at all because I spent it in the ICU and I came out of the ICU and started to learn about my accident. And the doctors painted a really grim picture. And since we go where our eyes go, like our thoughts, you know, attract the things <laughs> based on what we're thinking. Well, same with our vision. So they painted this bleak picture of my life filled with dependency, a lack of independence, pain and suffering, more surgery. And so then I could only see something that was a life of despair. I became angry and worried and frustrated and even revengeful. I wanted to get back at the driver. I was I was really upset as many people would imagine I, I would be. But that whole concept of we go where our eyes go, I couldn't see any of the goodness in my life at that moment. I couldn't see that I had a loving wife and a loving family right by my side that were rooting for me to get better. All I saw was everything I had lost. That is so typical because when we are in the fray, when we are in that space where we're being attacked or we're dealing with the, you know, the pain or the direct aftermath, that's the space where we just, where we're surviving. You know, I mean, of course, that's where the raw emotion is going to be. Of course, that's where, you know, everything's going to go to hell. It's the, it's the space after where you choose you know, yes. which, which direction to face. But, you know, before we got too far out of the accident itself, I wanted to share this quote from your book 
because it it was just very visceral. You said, quote, they tried to lift my limp and battered body off the bloodstained asphalt and onto the backboard, but it was unbearably painful. I had never experienced anything so excruciating in my life. I let out what I can only describe as the primal scream of a trapped animal. I felt like that was so clear to take us to that horrible space of having your body crushed, being unable to move and just being in an utter state of pain and, you know, no control. What do you do from that point? You know? Yeah. Of no course, control. Of, of no course, yeah. Of course you're going to go to this space of anger and unfairness and revenge. And that's very natural. It, it was in hindsight. I can totally see that in the moment, like I was just in it and I couldn't, I didn't have the awareness, but then a mentor came to me and said, Hey, Michael, all your events in your life are neutral until you label them. And at first I didn't really understand what he meant. And then he went on further and shared, Hey, nothing really has meaning in your life until you give it meaning. You can, you can put your label and meaning on this whole accident, what happened. Because initially, like when I'm in victim mode, everyone came to my aid and said, yes, you are in victim mode. They, they almost validated it. And so there was some danger there that I would just stay there. There was sort of this choice that was being presented to me. And he came and he helped shine a light on a different option that instead of being defined by my accident, I could be defined by how I responded to it, that I could rise up and you know start working on what, and this came later with my big aha my big shift that if I wanted to get my body right, I first had to get my mind right. And I had to get my thinking, I had to point my eyes in a different direction. And that was so critical to helping me like understand like, okay, I have some choice in this. And that slowly but surely the the clouds started to part. And I could see some clarity and some sun shining. And I took my first steps more figuratively than literally, because I was still in my wheelchair and I was still hospitalized. But I was like, okay, well, today I'm going to start showing up different. I'm going to get my mind right so I can heal my body. And I can make more of a connection with the people I wanted to make a connection with. I wanted to change my energy. And because I knew enough about energy back in the day where it was like, all right, the energy is rippling. If I put out better energy, it could come back to me and that could help me get just a little bit better tomorrow than I am today. So what was it that caused your shift? Well, part of it was a little bit of comparison. When I looked around at other people, some people were getting better and other people weren't. And I was frustrated with my progress. I want—I just wanted to feel normal again, Lori. I wanted, to, I wanted to get out of the hospital too, even though I wasn't ready to get out of the hospital. Some of the shift came with like the competitiveness that I have of like, how are they getting better? I'm not getting better. Like what's happening there? And so I used that spark, I used that energy to help like get me motivated. But I also got clear on like what I wanted out of my life, that purpose, that awareness. And I, you know, I had a little pep talk with myself to say, like, listen, let go of all these things that you're chasing after, all those external merit badges that are now today so common to chase after. And just show up for the people in your life in the way that you want. Be the best version of you you can be. You're the best husband, the best father. And so I got really focused on that because in those moments when you are down to like, you know, brass tacks, all the stuff that you have doesn't matter at all. It's about the connection. It's about your health. It's about your community. It's about your family. And I got really serious about that, that I, I knew I had to get my mind and body right so I could be the best husband and father I could be. 
and then I let go of all the other stuff that sort of the trappings of corporate life and, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and all that jazz. And that was sort of the beginning. And so that, that's the thing that gave me the big shift. And the very next day I decided that I was going to show up differently, right, right off the rip first thing in the morning with a different ritual to help frame my day in a healthier way. So I could see what I still had and I could still, I could see what I still could do. Well, just so the audience knows, you know, you've skimmed through the being hit to all of a sudden you have a new attitude, but in the book, it breaks down the long, long, long (laughs) space of being in the hospitals and surgeries. And this was not an easy thing, nor was it a short thing. This was months and months and transfers from the New Mexico hospital up to New York and Just really incredible detail that, of course, just got skipped over here, lest we simplify the the intensity of the tragedy. When you talked about making that shift, I let me read the little bit out of your book where you said this. You said, quote, I assessed who was making progress and who was stuck. For those who were making progress, what were they doing differently? What I observed astounded me. The thing that these patients seemed to have in common was an optimistic mindset. They believed they were getting better. This belief gave them the energy and momentum to keep moving forward. They had a different perspective. They not only celebrated when things went well, but they also took their setbacks in stride. It felt like a gigantic light bulb suddenly switched on in my mind. It was a moment of total consciousness. This was my shift and nothing would be the same again, unquote. So when you woke up that next morning and you decided to go with this shift, what was your new ritual? Well, I got out of my wheelchair. I scooted myself out of bed out of my wheelchair, and I tried to find a very quiet place in the hospital, which is not easy to do. Because I knew this, Lori, that I had to get my mind quiet because I had a whole bunch of stuff in my mind, a whole bunch of clutter, a lot of different narratives. And so I wheeled myself to that quiet place, and I just sat in silence. It sort of became the beginning of a meditation practice. And I didn't know back then anything about meditation or mindfulness. I, but I thought it was like, well, that's what crunchy granola people do. I'm like, I'm a corporate guy. I'm not going to do any of that. But I sat, focused in on my breath, got quiet, and really set my intentions for the day. How did I want to show up for my rehab, for the visitors, my wife who came each day, actually twice a day. And that was the beginning. And then I worked on my mind and body connection to the degree I could do some exercises in my wheelchair, I did mainly with upper body. And then eventually, you know, I turned on my music. Uh, Depeche Mode's Violator CD was the soundtrack of my recovery. I probably played that a thousand different times. But that was all like part of my ritual to get going in the day. That helped me start that new day off on the right foot. But something happened later that day. I went to the orthopedic surgeon and he was going to give me clearance to put weight on both legs. So I thought it was going to be a great day. I thought oh, the timing was perfect. Like this new ritual, this new attitude. I'm going to go to the doctor. He's going to say, clean bill of health. You can start walking again. I'd be that much closer to getting out of the hospital. And then he shared with me, "You're not. your body's not ready yet. And I was devastated. It was definitely like one of those hits. I fell back down again. But the next day I realized, okay, that's a moment. Don't give it any more fuel than it deserves. Don't have it last any longer than it needs to. And then the next morning, I began that ritual again. And so th- this process of mine is sort of still going on. It's, you know, it's part of the journey I, I'm on is to live life with more intentionality, more purpose, more connection. And so I still have 
a bad moment from time to time, but I'm determined that I want to cherish each day and put my energy towards it to create a better tomorrow and really treat it as the gift it is, you know, now that I have sort of a second chance on life, if you will. You know what I love about the things not going well that day with the orthopedic surgeon is that whenever we want to learn a thing, life, God, something shows up in workshop style to help us practice it. Meaning that probably whatever you don't want to have happen is going to happen so that you can implement whatever skill set you have in order to practice it. I mean, life is really this one big workshop of if you want to work on relationship skills or you want to work on abundance, creating abundance skills or whatever it is, things will pop up to help you practice those skills so that you can get better and better at them. And if you're not aware of it, it's something that, you know, you can start paying attention to. But I just see it over and be careful what you want to learn <laughs> because you're going to get opportunities to learn it. I think also when you can keep that perspective, all of us, when we can keep that perspective that when something shows up, it's a workshop to practice a skill rather than, oh my gosh, something's going wrong again. You know what I mean? That it's a much different attitude to being able to work through it. I love, I love what you just said, Lori, and I absolutely agree. You know, back before my accident, the whole concept of like the universe or God or whoever putting things in our life as lessons. I was like, I'm too busy for that. Like I got stuff to do. I got ladders to climb and things to buy. And in a lot of ways, like my accident, I believe like the universe, God, whomever sent me messages and I just blew past them because I wasn't living life with much awareness. And they're like, Hey, Michael, you keep on ignoring us. We're going to give you one message you cannot ignore. And a voila, the Ford Explorer comes into my life. And then you fast forward to that doctor's appointment. And I'm like, oh man, that universe, man, that is, they're, they're tricky. You know, like <laughs> they got a, they got a sick sense of humor. Uh, like, thanks I'm a all, lot. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. Like I'm already, I'm all optimistic. I got this, all this going on. And I go to him and he's like, nope. And I'm like, dang, this is hard. And yeah, you know, putting forth because at that moment in time, that's not physical labor, that's emotional labor. And totally. emotional labor is hard stuff. But if we want to create the lives we want to create, have the careers that we want, make a difference in other people, it's all emotional labor. And that was some of the most beautiful lessons I've learned along the way. And I'm still learning them today. That, you know, because now I get to now I get to see them when they pop up. I can be quick to process and digest the lesson and hopefully apply it that yeah the universe god whomever they act in mysterious ways that are probably not so mysterious they put things in our lives so we can learn the lessons from them and apply them to make a make an impact that's meaningful in today's society so two questions and I, I don't even know if you can pinpoint a hardest part because there were so many difficult things, but is there one thing that stands out as the most difficult aspect of this? And then what was something that you learned or gained joy in from the experience? So the hardest part initially was trying to come up with my new identity because I had before the accident, part of my identity was like, I'm an athlete. And that was sort of what my relationship with my dad was based on. We weren't, it wasn't like an emotional, deep emotional connection. It was all about sports. 
And so I had this, all right, I'm an athlete. You know, they didn't really stress school all that much, but they stress sports. And so here I had lost my athletic ability. And so I was like, okay, now who do I become now? That time period, and that took a while, you know, obviously the book is only so long. And so you sort of fast forward some parts, but understanding like, who do I want to become? Who do I want to step into? That was a hard part. And luckily I had so many wonderful people in my life that could help me. It was sat with me so I could clarify things, ask me questions. I could ask them, I could talk it out, but that was definitely hard. And I would not have been able to find it without just the, the value of community. Um, the, the joyous part is I loved, I loved rehab, to be honest, Lori. I loved going there and knowing that I had someone in my physical therapist who was going to nurture me. She was going to pick me back up if I fell on the ground, figuratively, not literally, because that would have been a mess. <laughs> and she was, she was going to push me. And I love that. All right. Like today, we're going to see if we're going to get a little bit stronger or get a little bit more flexibility. And that whole idea of, of progress. So I think one of the things I learned is that I can be self-accepting of myself because that was another piece of it. Like, and someone just asked me this the other day is I didn't really accept myself back before my accident. I had a lot of those conversations. Many people have about, I'm not enough. I have to do more to be more. And so through this journey, I've learned to accept myself, but also have enough space where I'm thirsty for more. And rehab gave me that first insight to that. Like, okay, I can accept where I am. I can ex like love myself and accept myself for where I am in this moment in time, but still be energetically thirsty to get a little bit stronger, uh, to get wiser. So that part of the process, um, I definitely, I love, but sort of still miss it today in some ways. Good for you, because that's a really hard space to be in to push yourself and to accept yourself, especially when you're in a broken space, you know, just getting to the space of acceptance and, and love and some sense of peace around it is tremendous work all on its own. It was hard too, because I have, as you can imagine, you saw some of the photos in the book. I have some beautiful scars. Now, early in my recovery, I tried to cover up those scars. So here I am, like it's 95 degrees in New York, it's humid you know, everyone's wearing shorts and I'm all bundled up because I didn't want people to see the scars and my skin grafts on my legs. I thought everyone was looking at me. Reality is no one was. But <laughs> I got to a point, thanks to my youngest daughter, one day we're on the couch and I was at home. So I was in shorts and she was touching my scars, my skin grafts. And, you know, this is just the beauty of like the optics of a, a young child. And I was like, what do you think of my scars? And she was like, they're really cool, dad. And I was like, can get choked up just even thinking about that moment. And I was like, wow, she thinks they're cool. And that helped me like break through the resistance to say, you know what? My, my scars are, they're sexy. They're cool. They tell my story. That Chicks without, dig scars. Yeah, like absolutely. Like, I don't want to cover these up because if I'm covering these up, I'm covering up the story. I'm covering up the soul story of all of us. Because this all took a big old Peloton working together to make this happen. And coming to that point so now like I you know I look in the mirror like scars and wrinkles and uh, maybe a gray hair or two and a blemish you know like I've grown to love all that and I, I want other people to also love that about themselves and accept that but all that stuff is the story of our lives and mm. we can accept that and love that and we still could be eager to take another step towards mastery 
or betterment or however we want to phrase it, we can have the space in our mind to be able to do both. And I think that's a really cool thing about life. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. Where can people get your book? So one place is right from my website, which is michaelobrienshift.com, O-B-R-I-E-N-S-H-I-F-T. And they can get an autographed copy of my book. But if people are you know, friends of Jeff Bezos and Amazon and all that jazz, they can get their <laughs> books there too. They can get Shift Creating Better Tomorrows as well as my latest book, which is My Last Bad Day Shift. Uh, which all helps them. It's more of a how-to on how to prevent those bad moments from turning into a bad day. Mm, Thank you. As we close up here, do you have any parting advice or thoughts you'd like to close with? Yeah, one of my favorites, and this is something I learned along the way, is to breathe more. I think we're so busy. We forget our breath. And, you know, for any athletes listening, you know how important your breath is to your performance. It's so important in life and in our jobs. And it's the one thing that we come into the world with and it's the one thing we, we leave with. Everything else sort of changes in between those two moments in time. And when we can, can reconnect with our breath, especially when our stress starts to percolate up, it can help us slow down and be more thoughtful and reflect. So I have a little phrase called grabbing a PBR, which does not stand for Pep's Blue Ribbon, but rather pause, breathe, and reflect. And it's just a simple breathing technique of a minute or two, just to inhale, exhale, box breathing technique. And that has done wonders for me as far as slowing things down when I, when I feel like I'm getting hijacked a bit. So I can be more reflective and more thoughtful about my next, my next move, the next thing I say, the next thing I do. So I would recommend to your audience just to breathe more and connect with their breath when they feel the stress coming on. You know, I had a lesson a couple of years ago that was kind of interesting. And this shows... <laughs> People will roll their eyes, but I had a guy, a subcontractor who was working on my house and he claimed he couldn't finish the job unless I loaned him $1,600. And I felt put on the spot, but I really wanted the job done. And he said he couldn't hire a truck unless he got his truck. Anyway, it was a big sob story and I just wanted it done. So I loaned him the money. (laughs) And a lot of it was because I felt pressure in the time because I didn't stop because I didn't think about it. And I could have said, I mean, it, it turned out badly, but I could have said, and the lesson I learned was that we need to stop, that we need to go slower, that when something comes up or someone asks something of us or something, we're confronted with something, we have the right to say, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. And then you stop and you breathe and you take a moment, you pause, you consider, and then you make a choice that feels right to your gut and that feels you know, sound to your heart. And then you move forward with that because you've taken the time to come from a good place. And that sounds similar to what you're talking about, where in those moments, we become less reactionary and more purposeful in our action. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great story. And I think we, we can do such a good service to ourselves by slowing down so we can go forward, maybe not faster, but we can go forward better. Mm-hmm. and be more intentional about our lives and so we can create the type of life that we want to create. Absolutely. So do you have any social media tags or? Yeah, the, probably the best place is either LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm also on Instagram. It, either one, you can type in Peloton Executive Coaching or Michael O'Brien Shift. Or if they go to my website, the link to connect on those platforms is right there for them. So I always love to connect with people and talk about their stories and I do believe I lived for a reason to help people live the life that they want to live and avoid 
their high speed collision. So if I can be just a small cog in their wheel to help them get there, then that brings me a lot of joy and a lot of gratitude. Thank you. And I will have all of his contact information and social media links in the show notes as well on the website, loveyourstorypodcast.com. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Lori. When I talk about reframing our stories, the ones that are holding us back, I'm talking about this very thing, the shift that Michael's talking about. When we're stuck in a story that isn't serving us, we must understand that we can shift our perspective and change our interpretation in order to stay on higher vibrational levels, in order to stay out of the victim mindset, in order to live our best life story. We can do that. We control all of that. Even when it's something as horrible as being hit by an SUV, having your very body crushed, having to come up against the types of obstacles that are so mentally trying, emotionally trying, physically trying. I'm grateful to Michael for sharing his story and his shift and giving us a visual of what that looks like in action. The power of our minds is more vast than we can comprehend. Use yours to create your best space, to lift you when you are down, to intentionally create the life that you want that will make you happy. I just read a quote earlier today from Martha Beck, and it was talking about how we are all so diverse that our life trajectories, how we live, is also going to be diverse. That the way you do it doesn't have to be how other people do it. Our lives are all going to be our own shades of color and our own ways of doing it. But you get to create the life that you want that brings you joy and happiness. And it doesn't have to follow patterns, but the way that we can do that. The first and most important step is to learn how to win the battles in our own hearts and minds. Your challenge this week is to find a story that needs to shift for you. Are you in a fight with your spouse and you can choose to let go of a way of seeing something that can help you find a happier space? Are you holding a grudge? Can you shift and give someone the benefit of the doubt? Do you have something bigger, like Michael's story, that needs a major shift? Try changing the thought and see what happens. Things only have the power that we give them. Please use www.loveyourstorypodcast.com for access to all the previous 160 plus episodes. Get your t-shirts, get a link to order my book off Amazon, Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day. It's a great resource. I will see you in two weeks on the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast. Have a great day, people. Thank you.